<laughs> you can hear the wind here like no place else. After people make their pilgrimage and leave their offerings to remember the 40 maidens, this place is beautiful. You can feel the strength that rests here. Do you know the story of Goliath and her 40 maidens? Oh, it's a good one. I first heard their story in a song. And not just any song. An epic song. A song so big and so deep that it carried the history of a people. The Karakalpak people. Sometimes I come here just to sit and think on things. Sometimes I come here to listen. Listen to the maidens and remember their legacy. Daughter, you are 16 now. The time has come for you to decide what to do with your life. To help you make your decision, I give you this gift, an entire island. Here, you can do as you wish. So what do you wish to do? Hmm. A 16-year-old just received an island as a gift. I wonder what she'll choose to do next. Father, the time has come for me to give my life to defending our people. I want to defend our fortress against any who wish to invade. Her father always believed in her. This gave her confidence. But was she mighty enough to defend the fortress alone? Goliath, well that is a mighty wish for a mighty girl. But, Father, I know I cannot do this alone. I will need to bring together some of the bravest fighters in our village to come with me. We will train and prepare together. And who will you find to help you? All the men are already soldiers in my army. <laughs> Don't you worry, Father. I know other fighters. Daughters, I come to you today because I'm looking for the bravest and the fiercest fighters. And who else is as brave as us, daughters? Look at yourself. You are a fighter. You don't have to know how to fight today, but you have to be ready to learn. Ready to learn how to ride, train for war, grow your own food. I know that if we banded together, we could keep our families safe for generations. Who's with me? Who's ready? And with that... 40 maidens, all unmarried teenage girls, banded together and became sisters in arms. Gotta love that Goliath. But one night, after a long time away training, Goliath and the girls returned home only to discover. Daughters, we have been invaded. Our entire village is gone. 
Our homes are burned to the ground. Our horses stolen and our crops are destroyed. Our brothers, fathers, uncles, and cousins have been massacred, scattered around us and left for dead. But where are our little sisters? Our mothers, aunts, grandmothers? Taken. They were all taken and forced into slavery. This will not stand. We have failed our people once and we will not fail again. We will bring justice for our lost ones and bring home all those who have been taken. Who's with me? Who's ready? The girls rode out to find the invaders. But along the way, the maidens met a band of rebels. Mm. In my wildest dreams, I, I have dreamed of meeting a group of girls like you. Girls who ride as fast and shoot as far. I'm sure all of my men have dreamed the same dream as well. Please, you heavenly creatures, marry us. Make us some of the happiest men alive. Rebels, we cannot accept your invitation of marriage. There is no time for romance. We are on a campaign against a tyrant who has taken our people prisoner. Besides more fighters, we need nothing from you. If you want a moment of our time, then join us in battle. Only after we are victorious can we talk about love. Daughters, attack! The rebels and the maidens fought the invaders and they fought hard. They all had something to fight for and they utterly defeated their enemy. But Goliath wasn't done yet. You, invader, you will take us to our people and we will watch you free them from captivity. And she wasn't done yet. You invaders will pay for what you have done. You will pay for every life lost and every home burned. You will pay until you have nothing left to give. Y'all, she just about bankrupted these invaders and put them to shame for their trouble. And she still wasn't done. You, rebels, you fought pretty bravely. You've all proven yourself worthy of my maidens and I. I will allow you to join with us in marriage, and we will protect our people together. What say you, rebel leader? Will you join us in love and war? I will. I am with you. I am ready. Their armies combined and their tribes united. Though they were a blend of different people from different places, they became much stronger when united. 
In fact, they became so strong together that their unity brought peace and security to their land for generations, just like Goliath wanted. Take a listen. Since the beginning, we've been the women out and always beating the system. They ain't want to give us rights, but we kept with the vision. Oh, no, where I go, where ammo gonna handle the business. Brave people, gals, guys, and everybody in between. How are you doing? Have you checked in with yourself today? What is making you bloom? Welcome to another episode of Vanguard of the Viragos, where we revisit the heroines of human history to learn from this hidden archive of treasures. I'm your hostess with the mostess, Chelsea D. I'm currently in Washington, D.C., and I want to uplift that I am on the ancestral lands of the Nacotchtank, Anacostan, and Piscataway peoples. I want to also uplift the hands and lives of those whose names we do not know, but whose devotion and commitment have kept us all alive. I thank you for your contribution. As a slight accessibility check-in, uh, I'm doing, doing really well today here in Washington, D.C. The COVID death total is growing, and so that is weighing heavy on my heart, but hopefully this conversation will be a, a, a bit of sunshine for you, wherever you are. And this is the portion of the show where I chat with a special guest. I like to tell stories because I'm a creative who is addicted to diverse representation and storytelling for the stories we tell mold the people we become. But my guests on this show are folks who are actively studying, preserving, excavating, and making history. These are the real heroes in my opinion. And today's hero is Dr. Solange Ashby. Thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure to be here, Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> I am so jazzed to have you on today. Uh, I was just telling you before we started recording, just looking at your work and what you have, have researched and the images that you've brought back from where you've gone, it's like, I could write 10 plays. I could write so many plays and characters just inspired by what you're doing out in the world. So thank you for your work and thank you for being here. My pleasure, my pleasure. <laughs> and then we got to get you to Egypt and Sudan at some point. Ooh, <laughs> claiming, claiming that, claiming that. How are you doing? How are you doing? I'm doing well, I'm doing well. Um, busy doing a lot of writing, teaching, reading, you know, it's the learning never stops. Um, but there's something about this quarantine stuck at home period, which also makes me able to attend and give a lot of online lectures. So I'll just be grateful for that for now. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Totally. All right. Well, let's dig in. Let's dig in. So can you share with us a little bit, or as much as you want, really, about what it is that you study and what drew you to this area of research? Sure. It's it's good to clarify at the outset that me being an Egyptologist means that I specifically study ancient languages. And so the ancient language of Egypt, which is 
different from the Arabic that's spoken there now, um, has a textual history of about 4,000 years. So there's a lot to study. Um, I think five phases of the language, four different scripts. And so I just did my entire doctoral studies working to learn these various phases of the language. Um, and so that's different than being an Egyptian archaeologist who goes and digs in the ground. I'm more that person who's reading ancient text, um, hieroglyphs on temple walls, um, inscribed pottery, that type of thing. Um, and so I'm just a language learner. I'm always, I've always been passionate about learning language. Um, growing up in New York City, I was mistaken for Dominican. And so people <laughs> spoke Spanish to me, I learned Spanish. Um, and then as I got older, I started to travel the world and I have tried as much as possible to learn some of the local language. And so I just have a facility for languages and but it was not until, you know, probably in my late 20s that I started studying ancient languages because I went to a very small college and they just, there was no ancient studies of any sort. And so um, I remember walking in the French Quarter in New Orleans and saw in a bookstore window, Martin Bernal's Black Athena. And I literally did a double take on the window because black and then the name of the goddess, Greek goddess Athena together, I thought, oh, I have to go see what that's about. Um, and so I got that book. I just devoured the entire book and became really passionate to know who were these ancient Egyptians? I had been really interested in Greek and Roman mythology. That was all I knew of in terms of the ancient world. But when I realized that Africa also had an ancient culture and that it was thousands of years more ancient than the Greeks and Romans that I was studying and that there was this incredibly complicated script to write a really complicated language, I just, I was hooked. And so I've been doing that since 2000, I guess it's 21 years now that I've been studying Egypt and, and really specifically the languages of Egypt. Oh, wow. I mean, something that I, when I was, when I was researching you <laughs> and I came across, <laughs> you know, your, your bio on Wikipedia, which, you know, I don't know, how wonderfully accurate Wikipedia is about everything, but they have you listed on Google as as of 2020, the only Black Egyptologist um, and Nubiologist, I believe, um, in the in the field or in the U.S. Is it in the field or in the U.S.? In the U.S., okay. I know of a woman in France, and then of course the Sudanese um, archaeologist. They're all African, but in the United States, it's me. There's a man named Andreas Wood who got his PhD several years before I did, um, but he is no longer working in the field. So I guess more precisely, I could say I'm the one black American woman to have a PhD in Egyptology. Oh, wow. <laughs> Have you faced any obstacles in in studying these things or or has it just been a natural organic progression for you that 
you know, has evolved into history, you know, making, you know, making history or, you know, have you had to develop, my mom describes it as, you know, develop a coat of armor to, in order to, you know, make your way through an environment that mind blowingly, even though it is of the, you know, your, your legacy and ancestry has not traditionally been open or even if it appears it has not been open, you know what I mean? Because obviously. And the appearance is, is truth. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, okay. It has been, you know, um, a club of wealthy white men, just to be really honest, who could mm-hmm. even afford to dabble in archaeology, mm-hmm. um, starting, you know, from the late 18th century, um, when Napoleon went down into Egypt and, and took all of that stuff, but also brought his scholars to to begin studying the antiquities um, in Egypt as he conquered the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has remained something that is um, a pursuit of the elite because um, it's a, a massive investment of time. Um, it is not guaranteed that there's going to be work in the field. There are very few jobs Um, When some uh, person who just contacted me out of the blue and said, I have been doing my own sort of um, um, amateur, if you will, non-professional research about ancient Egypt, and I believe you are the only Black American Egyptologist, I was like, get out of (laughs) here. Like, I just, I never once considered that as a possibility, and she kept insisting. And then I asked a friend who is another Black American woman who is now writing her dissertation. So she will be joining me shortly. Yeah. And she confirmed, yes, it's true. I think, Solange, that you are the one. (laughs) So it's a kind of a weird honor to have, which is more an indictment on the field that it has just not been open to a diverse um, group of scholars. But I think with all of this so-called racial reckoning that we're doing yet again here in the <laughs> United States, <laughs> that, that the discipline of Egyptology is having to sort of wrestle with its links uh, with uh, European colonization in Africa, um, the racism that is there sort of interwoven into the field from the very beginning. So, you know, I see my fellow scholars trying to grapple with these issues. What it means for me is that all of a sudden now I'm just getting so many invitations to give talks as all of a sudden folks are like, yeah, we got to diversify. <laughs> and we have to also talk about Nubia because this is another issue where the focus, I love this from Christopher Eric from UCLA said, Egyptian exceptionalism. He said, we have to put aside Egyptian exceptionalism because it is but one of the amazing ancient cultures from Africa. And so I chose to focus on another one being Nubia um, and then also moving into Ethiopia as well. And so all of a sudden, uh, the discipline of Egyptology now realizes that Nubia exists and that we should be also talking about Nubia. It's such an incredible way to really unearth 
all of the contributions that that Africa has made to the development of, as someone said said the other night during an interview, civilization with a big C. Mm. You know that like we we are claiming, you know, reclaiming, claiming that which which has always been. What is you are working on something that will be the first of its kind, and it's called a monograph. Is that correct? Yes. So I wanted to say that is just like a fancy pants term for a standalone (laughs) book as opposed to an article. I remember doing exactly the same thing when the librarian at this archives at Chicago said, oh, I believe we have a monograph on the subject. And I'm like, (laughs) what's that? It's just a fancy way of saying a standalone book. But the point is, and that's why I, I use that term to make clear that although there are many, many, or there are some articles written about these uh, Kushite queens, the one uh, standalone book that I'm aware of is written in German. And I'm so thankful that the author, Angelica Lohwasser, came and spoke to my class at Barnard. But um, that book is obviously not accessible to my undergraduate students or to the public at large. And this is information that I think um, everyone should know about, not only women, but also men, but really, really particularly Black women should know this history um, because it turns everything, uh, white supremacy and misogyny on its head if we can look back to a time where there were women who ruled in their own right and were portrayed in all of their voluptuous buxomness, so we don't have to try to stick to this uh, European aesthetic of a very svelte and thin, almost boyish-like body, like these queens showed their power and their female power through their ample voluptuous bodies. And I just love that. And there's so much, I think what actually got me so obsessed with like ancient warrior queens and ancient queens and wanting to find people who were doing research on this was just this idea that there were ways of looking at femininity and feminine power that to me felt more advanced, like the understanding of gender, or maybe not advanced, but more nuanced um, understandings of gender in ancient times Mm. than I feel today. You know, it feels like today there's a kind of stringency and like inflexibility, rigidity around what is considered femme, what is considered powerful, and how these two things live together. So what have you learned about um, the feminine presence in these ancient um, kingdoms and, and civilizations? How did people see um, the feminine, you know? Yeah, it's sort of at all levels. So from the divine uh, to um, royalty to mothers within families. And so at all levels, the powerful female is there. Um, And she's not there alone and sort of domineering everyone, but she's there as an integral part of um, a complementary pair so that the male and the female are uh, two energies that 
come together to to bring forth life and make creation. And this happens um, in the divine sphere. And so we have very powerful goddesses, uh, Mut and Isis, and then a very specific Nubian goddess called Amasemi. Um, and they are uh, matched with male gods, but they also have their own realms and their own powers and, and act very much independently. And the same is echoed then in, in Kushite royalty. And so we have a male and a female ruler um, almost always until we get to this late period, the Meroitic period, where sometimes there are sole ruling queens, but she's still... Um, interestingly, is always portrayed as having a prince, uh, he's called. So a male who is uh, her partner somehow or present with her, but she's clearly the person in charge. And that was really okay. They were really all right with um, the woman being the leader in this role. But then it also comes down into the individual family. And I love to just say this, like Nubians are not just historical people. They're still alive. Um, they live, their lands, traditional lands have been divided by the European colonial borders between Egypt and Sudan. So Nubia is in Southern Egypt and Northern Sudan. Due to a bunch of political turmoil, they're also um, living outside of those lands. Um, for example, in in the DC area, you know, there's a fairly large Nubian community um, in Northern Virginia. And so, once I got used to seeing this modern face, I see uh, Sudanese Nubians at the gas station or mm -hmm. you know, working at the movie theater, and it's always such a great connecting point when I say, are you Sudanese? And just a huge smile, like, wow, you're an American and you reckon, you know, you see me. Uh -huh. um, but I say all that to say, even in this modern living um, culture, the, the woman, the mother is still the center of the way the society is organized. So kinship terms are talking about who you are in relation to the mother. Um, and men will still, even in a nominally or, or in fact, Muslim society will um, refer to themselves um, in reference to their mother. So say their name and say who their mother is as a way to identify themselves. And so I love that this female power, this sort of female centrality comes all the way down through history at all the levels from divinity, royalty, to just society, normal people. Oh, I mean, even just hearing you describe that, I'm like, that is so not the way that, you know, growing up in, in, in the U.S. at this time, you would never think to refer to yourself through the legacy of, of the, the matrilineal line, you know? But you know what's so interesting? I, so Barnard College is a women's college, but I have two men in my class. I have not yet asked them. Maybe they're Columbia students, um, but one of them is a young man from South Africa, and he's joining via Zoom like we all are. 
And I love his commentary because I think he's, uh, I think from Zulu background, if I'm not mistaken. And every time when I'm talking about these roles of the queens, he will bring in uh, an historical Zulu queen or talk about how women are revered in the culture. Um, and the same is true of a birth worker woman who I met, uh, she's Shona from Zimbabwe. And when she's talking about the sort of rituals around birth and how everyone comes together to support the mother, it's just such a beautiful emphasis on the importance of the woman in African culture. And I think this is something that we are so cut off from in many ways in the diaspora. And I feel a little bit like a proselytizer that I'm telling this history because I would really like for us to do that Sankofa move and go back and, and resurrect that um, reverence for the feminine. Mm, me too. I'm with you. I'm with you. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the Temple of Philae. Yeah. And your your time there. Um, I want to talk about ancient graffiti, but I also I want to start with just talking about the landscape. Before we started recording, um, I was telling you about how you know in in, in DC, um, right next door in in a part of Maryland is the is the birthplace of Harriet Tubman, mm -hmm. and how I would take trips because of quarantine. I could I could go on these road trips and go and stop at these historic sites where you don't have to interact with anybody. It's just like an old house in a, in a, on a street or something, um, or just sometimes just a just a, a hill or a patch of grass or something that was so important <laughs> to to the history. But anyways. I was talking about how I would go to these places and the landscape started to become a real character in the story of Harriet Tubman for me in a way that I had never really thought about what a sunset for her must have looked like or what being near these bodies of water, what it, what it meant to her story and her development. So I, I really just, what was it like being there, you know, being on these ancient waterways and things? Yeah, so let me just set the scene and I will encourage your listeners to just Google Temple of Philae, P-H-I-L-A-E. It is gorgeous. It is on an island that's set in the middle of the Nile River. Um, you, if you were, so I should add that the Nile flows from south to north. This is really important. So it's bringing rich black soil down out of the highlands of Ethiopia, um, and then even further south in Rwanda. But as a boat would be approaching uh, Philae on the river, there's a bend in the river. And so you can only imagine these Nubians arriving at the temple by boat and coming around the bend and all of a sudden there is this temple situated on an island in the middle of the river that, that confronts them. And it's very interesting that unlike most Egyptian temples that are facing east toward the rising sun, and this is all part of the religious theology, this particular temple faces south. And so it seems to have been constructed um, with interaction with the Nubians in mind. 
So I arrive um, always, as does everyone by boat. It's a glorious way to arrive at the temple. You have to haggle at the dock with the Nubian boatmen to get the price. And I'm always trying to get like the local price, not the tourist price. And so I spent some time chatting with the guys. We boat up. And so we're approaching from the north, but have to circle around the island to the south to um, dock the boat and then walk through this forecourt lined with columns on either side and approach the monumental gateway in front of the temple. Um, but my experience being there, as I was sharing with you before recording, is that because I wasn't going with the tour group, but I was just sort of haggling with some guy who had his, his <laughs> boat at the dock, <laughs> I would just say, yeah, I'm going to... Um, get here at 10 in the morning. If you can come back for me at four or five, that would be great. And I'm gonna pay you that same amount of money. So we would, so that meant <clears throat> that unlike the tourists who are sort of herded in there as a group of 30 or 40 people, um, spend an hour or two and then leave, I could um, be there for four to six hours. And in between these waves of tourists, I might be the only person in the temple, which was so powerful to be in this space with the soaring columns, every inch of the wall decorated with larger than life-size scenes of gods and goddesses, and then the king making offerings to them, and then every available space that did not have an image was covered with hieroglyphic text. Um, and I was, of course, reading these texts, but more specifically looking for the small, smaller engraved um, prayer inscriptions left by everybody, Egyptians, Greek visitors, Roman visitors, but I was there very specifically looking for the inscriptions left by the Nubian visitors. And because I've spent so much time at this temple and so much time studying these people, I feel like I know them. And so it's interesting to stand in front of areas that I um, figured out and described were sort of focal points for Nubian piety um, two or three specific areas of the temple, just to stand in that space and think why Akia A stood here to give his prayers before the goddess Isis. His son, Hornokdiotef II, also stood here to record his prayers. This one particular wall in the, um, the proneos, it's called the front part of the main temple dedicated to Isis, has inscriptions from eight generations of a particular Nubian priestly family. And so it's very powerful to stand there and to know that they were at this spot conducting rites. There probably was a divine statue that they came and, and gilded, coated over with gold every single year. And then they would take this divine statue in procession over to the neighboring island to visit the um, temple <clears throat> that was associated with the burial site of Osiris, the husband of Isis. And so it was very cool to just be <laughs> there by myself. You talked about coding this, this, um, 
you know, divine statue in gold every year. I mean, that's such a beautiful image, you know, or are there any other practices that you can share that stand out to you? Yeah, so about gilding the statue, the Egyptian phrase that these Nubian priests used when they're writing their inscriptions was to make new. And we just Mm. understand that to be gilding the statue. And isn't that powerful? Because Mm. gold was considered to be the skin color of the gods. It was associated with immortality. And so to gild this statue was literally in the Egyptian demotic uh, expressed as to make new. And so they say we come every year to make new the goddess Isis. I just mm. love that. <laughs> so then two other things, the, the more Egyptian speci- um, general um, practice that I love um, comes from the term uh, duat. And that means to worship or to revere. And the hand gesture that goes with it is sort of bending the forearm, raising the hands and holding the palms toward the revered object. And so actually, I don't share this often amongst Egyptologists, but I am an early riser and I wait for the sunrise every morning. And this is very traditional Egyptian practice. Duat means to revere, to worship, but it is also a reference to the Eastern horizon where the sun is understood to be birthed uh, from the body of a goddess. Um, mm, wow. and so I raise my hands and I, I revere the sun as it's rising every morning. And this wow. is Egyptian practice. And I I love that I've also heard from folks who've been in Ethiopia, I have not yet, that that's when Ethiopian churches are full. In the middle of the day, they might be sitting empty, but before dawn, the practice is for Ethiopian Orthodox worshipers to arrive and make their prayers before the sun rises. So I just love that. Um, and then so back to the more specific Nubian right. And I I am making this assertion. I don't um, think anyone else has studied it closely enough to either have made this assertion or yet to argue back with me. But I claim that this right of the milk libation, although we see it depicted on the walls at Philae Temple and it is Ptolemaic Greek kings who are performing the right. Um, I argue that this tradition, this ritual was introduced into the temples um, of Nubia from the Kushites from further south. Mm-hmm. Um, because the first depiction that we have of it was a Meroitic king uh, called Archimani II, who um, shows himself performing this rite of pouring milk libations in a temple called Dhaka about 80 miles south of Philae, so deeper into Nubia, and that it also forms a really important rite for the rebirth, the regeneration of the deceased Meroitic ruler. And so inside of their funerary chapels, um, there is always a woman, often bare-breasted, who is shown pouring out a milk libation Um, as an offering to the deceased as part of the mechanism by which he or she will be um, reborn 
uh, into an eternal afterlife. There's just so many astounding images, like the procession of the Isis statue, the the I wonder like what 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 were, what were the fabrics like? What what was the was there music? What was there food? I mean, just what it must have been like to be a part of these um, practices. It's like, oh, oh, it just sparks my imagination so much. Um, I've heard you mention ancient graffiti. Is that a, where did you see that in the temple? Is it, was, is it kind of low to the ground or, and how did you know it was graffiti and not official text? Good question. So I, I credit my dissertation advisor, Janet Johnson, still at University of Chicago, amazing scholar of this uh, script called Demotic that I've also specialized in, um, with nudging me gently as her way to move away from graffiti and more to prayer inscription. Because mm. graffiti gives the impression from our modern context that it's illegitimate, that it's um, superficial, illegal. And this is this is not that at all. They are more precisely called prayer inscriptions. Um, and so the way that you can tell that they're not part of the original decoration of the temple is that all of the script uh, or the texts that decorate the temple walls and literally every inch of the walls is either covered with larger than life images or hieroglyphic texts. And that's the clue. Everything monumental is to be written in the hieroglyphic script. But these priests wrote their inscriptions in Demotic. And so you see the really big hieroglyphic text, and then sort of right in front of the face of an image of Isis, you'll see written from right to left, a, a really beautifully inscribed um, prayer in, in Demotic. Um, and they did place them intentionally. So right by the mouth or the face of the god or goddess, really specifically focusing on Isis and Osiris, even though all kinds of other gods are depicted there and right around the image of the offerings being made to um, these gods. Wow. That was a long answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> that was thorough. And it's a great, it's a great um, delineation because I think about like, I think about the history of graffiti and, it, and its associations. Um, and yet, as if, you, if you're really paying attention and you really have an appreciation for the aesthetic, you understand it to be art you know you understand it to be something that requires a artisan a craftsman level of skill and precision and it's expressing it's expressing something from a population you know that if we have biases against a population we're not going to recognize the beauty of what is what is being seen in front of us so I love that that's that's a part of what you're your work is bringing forward it's like this this is representing this is just if you were to look at graffiti and just go okay this is just scribbling on the side of a building or, or it's not supposed to be here it's, it's not welcome here you would miss the whole history of hip-hop the whole history of you know what I mean like there would be so much that would be left out so 
I'll riff off of what you just said, Chelsea, because that's right. I mean, there. I don't mean to demean graffiti because so mm -hmm. much of the imagery is gorgeous. And even the way the letters of the text is, is formed. And there is a similarity with what I see my Nubian priests doing and with modern graffiti, which is laying claim to a space mm -hmm. by tagging up there by leaving your image there um you are claiming that space that you have a right to be in that space and that that this is your your neighborhood your street or just a sacred space where maybe a comrade has fallen um so that in that way it is kind of similar to graffiti i mean it's always is shocking to me talking to people who study such such a deep past of humanity and yet the striking similarities what's really fascinating you right now and it could be um something that you're, you're you're working on or it could just also be a question in general about you know where the, the study of the humanities is going study of language you know what's really what's inspiring you right now or what's haunting you it's it's like this jumble of things. I think the overarching theme is always Nubia, but I am really uh, fascinated with what were the women doing and mm. uh, what were their roles? How were they interacting in these ritual practices? Uh, because the corpus of inscriptions that I studied for my dissertation, it took me quite a long while to just have it dawn on me. Oh, these are only men. Only men ever wrote these prayer inscriptions. There are two or three, maybe four inscriptions in a temple of Hathor, also on the island of Philae, that were written by women, but they seem not to belong to the group of Nubians that I was studying. And so then I got a bit obsessed with, well, what were the women doing? Because the inscriptions say, I'm here, I'm performing the rites before my eldest daughter, or I'm praying for the safety of my mother, may we make the journey to Meroe together, or I'm here together with all of my people. And so it's clear that um, the Nubians are not coming as sort of lone ambassadors on behalf of the Meroitic king, although such people did come. They're not coming only as really high-ranking priests who could also conduct rites and read um, the, the sacred prayer scrolls at the temple, but they're coming as um, extended families, which is the sort of the thing that I'm the most interested in, this very different way of being that is kind of less hierarchical and more uh, about extended family kinship groups. Um, and so I'm really interested to know what are women doing and and what are their roles in, um, they seem to be the pivot point around which this entire society functions. Um, so I'm looking at words from the Meroitic language that are kinship terms. Uh, there's a specific one called yet mede that we can't quite translate, but it seems to be uh, talking about people who are related to the person leaving the inscription, probably through the maternal line and sort of sketching out uh, a network of social interactions for that particular person. 
it seems to be so, so important in this Nubian context that sometimes they don't even say their own name. <laughs> you know, like they're just, they say almost always first my mother was, and they use a verb that means I was born of. So I would say I Solange born of Carlin using my mother's name and then sired by a different verb Ormond. And so this is the way that you sort of start saying who I am. But then I would say yet mede. I am yet mede to this person, probably using like a ritual title or a political title to just sort of place me in in the social context. So I'm I'm really interested in exploring these kinship terms in looking at gender in this African kingdom and 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 then learning more about the ways that this is expressed elsewhere on the African continent. And so this is where my education continues because I was educated in a very typical Egyptological way where the department where I studied was Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. You got to let that go. But all of the focus was towards the Mediterranean, the Levant. Um, and so I'm, I'm always trying to continue looking south. So I'm reading a lot about African queenship. Um, there's a book, I can't remember the name of the author, but it's called The Invention of Woman. So a way of understanding um, femaleness, um, in, in the African culture. Um, and then a lot about sort of body studies because these people uh, in Nubia in the very earliest period were uh, cattle pastoralist. And so a lot of the focus for them was less on building monumental buildings or having empires and more on what can we, carry on our bodies, meaning therefore body decoration like um, beads and cowrie shell belts and piercings, earrings, the men and women wore earrings, tattooing. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> I won't go on too long, but it's this kind of stuff that I'm really interested in. So if there's something about your study of African queenship that you can share that's like a nugget of, I don't know, wisdom or something, you know? Um, is there anything? Yeah, and what I should admit once again is that I, as I said, I'm just starting to move out of the Nile Valley. And so, you know, I'm at the beginning of these studies, but what I see as a commonality is, um, an acceptance or even an expectation that women will be strong and that and being really all right with a strong woman as a queen who is um, either ruling on her own or or more often as a, a essential complement to a strong male and that these two um, work together for even an even greater strength. Having lived in a society that um, frankly hates and despises black people and hates and despises women as black women, 
I am just uh, amazed and in awe of the ways that we continue to triumph. And that's not anything new. I, we are drawing on this lineage, even if we don't know that it exists, because it just is in our DNA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I told right. you I was proselytizing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And then to see, you know, the work that you're doing is going to lay out in, in, in book form and all these different forms. This is what this looks like. This is where we have been. This is the evidence of such. And so the expectation in the new, you know, in the coming time, you know, I hope it, I hope that we can we can explicitly be moving into a time of feminine strength. Strength yeah. coming from the femme body is not an, an, an unnatural thing. You know, you know I, apart. I feel like that we're just seeing it. Like this last presidential election, we just saw that everywhere with Stacey Abrams doing mm-hmm. her thing in Georgia. Um, mm-hmm. But I also work in, you know, birth and maternal care. And so I see the Black women who are out there serving other women as they birth their children, trying to mitigate this terrible um, ma- maternal mater- mortality rate that we have in the black community. And so Mm -hmm. I just, it is happening. And I think with my book and my academic work, I'm just sort of going to put a bow on it and say, this is a thing. This is who we are. This is what we come from. Yeah. So to round us off, uh, who is a Virago from history or contemporary times (laughs) or a Virago from history you want to bring to contemporary times (laughs) who you want to hang out with? So I said I had trouble sort of coming up with an answer, but I did sort of say off the top of my head that Harriet Tubman is an incredibly strong woman who is always on my mind. And we both have sort of traveled those waterways in Eastern Maryland to, to see where she was doing her thing, just Mm -hmm. being a queen and a warrior queen at that. Um, so I would love to be able to meet her. I I can't imagine that she would be anything less than fierce. <laughs> um, but I will also say that um, there is a Kushite woman. She's a princess, so a daughter of a Kushite king named Kashta. Her name was Amenirdis the first. We call her because there's another Kushite um, princess of the same name but she was installed as a god's wife of Amun. So this is a a ritual role of incredible power, also political power um, associated with the temple of Amun at Karnak, which is um, at the city of Thebes, a really powerful ritual and political center in Southern Egypt. And so when her father, Kashta, came in uh, to conquer Egypt and start this uh, Kushite 25th dynasty in Egypt, she was installed to be the god's wife of Amun. And she um, is another really powerful woman. There are just gorgeous images of her, you know, life-size um, statues I think made from granite her funerary chapel is there on the west bank opposite Thebes so if you if you do go to Egypt it's worth it to visit her 
Um, and she's just depicted beautifully, very regal. She's wearing a vulture headdress, um, which makes reference to the goddess Moot, who was the divine partner of the god Amun. Mm -hmm. So this god's wife of Amun is also uh, meant to be a partner to the god, if you will. And there is um, ritual, there's religious significance. But what I love about... Um, Egypt, and then even more so Kush, is that sexuality, female sexuality is an inherent and very important part of the religious role. And mm -hmm. so it, it really turns on the head, um, these monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam um, really making female sexuality dirty, sinful, and immoral, that um, is not present in Egypt or Kush. Um, in fact, there's a very explicit sexuality and, and it is a good thing and it's a powerful thing and it's a creative force. And so I see all of that with Amenertis the first. Um, she's just... Uh, regal, but she's also very sexual. Her her role was to be the sexual partner of the god, and I I love a religion that um, includes women as priests, if mm -hmm. you will, priestesses, and part of their role is to bring their female sexuality. There's something very empowering about that. I have yeah. to say we've we've lost so much. And it in fact, I'll go a step further and say that it is very intentional in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam that female sexuality is called sinful and and forbidden and looked down on because these religions all came into being in a society where worshiping the goddess and these um, practices re revering the feminine were the field. That, mm -hmm. that was religion when Judaism, Christianity, and then Islam came into being. So each of these religions is grappling with pushing down the power of the female in order to uh, raise up their one male god and and sort of get women out of the business of religion. And so that is very intentional. You even talking about the partnership, that there was an understanding that there's a necessity for both and that one one is not needed to dominate the other. We don't need to go to a place of like, um, kill all the men, you know, only the women, <laughs> that there was an appreciation that it takes both. And so this is what I feel like is what I want to bring the world into is like, we got to remember this so that we can get to a place of balance so that we can then move forward because it's so lopsided right now. Like, and that's just, why we're mm -hmm. a hot mess. That is, I mean, yes. And so what you just said about balance, there are two opposed Egyptian terms for that. Ma'at is the balance, right? Where everything is in divine right order uh, and everything is seen as a duality. So each of all of the things in pairs should be in balance. And the opposite is isfet, 
And it's not sin because the ancient Egyptians didn't talk about sin, but it was chaos or disorder. Mm -hmm. Things are not right in the world. Um, and so you're very much talking in this kind of Egyptian theological mindset of things should be in balance, including the male and the female. It is not about women now getting revenge on men because that is more isvet, that's more chaos and destruction. It's not um, what brings us to ma'at, which is divine right order, it's peace, it's a goddess. And it is her, the feather that is her symbol that is on the scale in the afterlife. When your heart and your deeds are being judged before Osiris, your heart is placed on one side of the scale and the very light feather of Ma'at is on the other. And if your heart is lighter, meaning that you have led a good life and in balance, then you get to go live forever uh, with Osiris in the afterworld. And if it's heavier, it gets devoured by this horrific female creature who's like a hippopotamus with a crocodile head. <laughs> she gobbles up your heart and that's it for you, never to be seen again. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I mean, this is just to me evidence of the fact that like it's in us. This is, this is, this, the, these ideas, these principles, this ethos, this this desire for peace, you know, for, for something sustainable, um, it's in us. It is. And we just want to name it. And I, I think this is the beauty of you studying languages and things is like, you are able to see through the development of language, how humans have come to name and therefore bring into being or manifest something um, physical, you know what I mean? It's almost like language brings us from the immaterial to the material and you study that miraculous <laughs> transformation throughout, throughout the ages, which is incredible. <laughs> incredible. I'm a fan. You're a celebrity in my book. Oh my gosh. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> you will be receiving some inscriptions from me. Uh, so that's how that'll be. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much, Solange, for joining me in conversation. It's been edifying, elucidating, all the all the things. <laughs> I really enjoyed it because you you gave as much as you got. So you, I mean, you were just laying out some Egyptian theology when you're talking about speaking reality into being. So oh wow, you already know. <laughs> Thank oh. God for that. <laughs> okay. I need to get into it. I need yeah. to get into it. So I, that's what I'm going to be spending probably the next phase of my life. <laughs> getting, getting, on, getting on board with that. Yes. Um, so thank you uh, to, to, to you, Solange. Thank you to everyone for listening to another episode of Vanguard of the Viragos. This conversation and more resources will be on the audio podcast website and all over the place. So join us. This is a whole world. We're going to have so much for you to dig into. Uh, so subscribe anywhere you see this. And always remember, we are all on the vanguard of a changing time. So be the difference. Lead with love. I'm the next generation manifested. Underground railroad exit in the matrix. Follow me.